Welcome to From Earning to Learning, the podcast where we talk about all things education. I'm your host, Dave Franjosen. Welcome to From Earning to Learning. We have a special episode for you. Uh, we're speaking with the Disrupt Text team, or half of the Disrupt Text team. So I guess when you talk about them either individually or as a collective, it's probably easier to start with what they don't do uh, because they are all over the place right now uh, as panelists and guests, uh, contributors to publications, consultants. They're on local and national committees, uh, Heinemann fellows. They do keynotes, blogs, uh, you name it, they do it. Um, and they're all incredible educators. And we are lucky to be joined by Julia Torres and Trisha Abarvia. So welcome. Thank you so much for having us, Dave. Yeah, thanks. Glad to be here. So I'd, I'd like to start. Um, could you explain what your your movement is, Disrupt Text? So tell us a little bit about that. Um, what's your mission? All right. Sure. You can start or I can either way. <laughs> All right. So I think um, I think our mission really is to um, disrupt and dismantle and rebuild the literary canon so that it is more inclusive, representative, and um, in a way a healing kind of curriculum for all students, students of color, absolutely, but also for white students in terms of thinking about representation, in terms of thinking about how they see the world, how they see themselves and their place in it. We're really thinking about what does the canon, quote unquote canon look like? Who's canon? Who does, who's in it? Who's not in it and why? And thinking about how we can help teachers and, and we're, we're both primarily literacy English teachers and really thinking about whose narratives get told and not told and how we can account for that, be accountable to that and take responsibility for it as educators and work towards a um, practice that is liberatory. And I wanna just add from our website, you can go to disrupttext.org and you can go to the menu and then you can see right there where we talk about our mission as being about literacy as liberation. Um, we don't believe in censorship and have never supported banning books. We believe that literature provides access to a diversity of experiences. And we'll talk a little bit more about that later. We believe that no curricular or instructional design is a neutral one. And we believe that critical analysis of all texts helps students become stronger thinkers. Um, we advocate for curriculum and instructional practices that are culturally responsive and anti-racist. And I wanted to read that directly from the site just because it's really laid out there very clearly for folks so that they can know what we represent and what we stand for. And Trisha also has a blog post. I think it was from 2019 or 18, but she talks about this work as being restorative. And so I wanna return back to what she was mentioning before that though we have the word disruption and you know some people might think of that as being a breaking apart or taking away from, this is additive work. This is work that is generative and it's inclusive. We wanna bring in the you know, historically marginalized and erased voices. And we wanna do the work of restoring a sense of belonging for a lot of our students that for the longest time have felt like the only great writing comes from people who don't look like them and comes from, you know, lands that are not where they come from and speaking languages that are not the languages spoken in their homes. So we really just believe in creating a better overall school experience for all kids, as Trisha yeah. mentioned. Yeah. So, yeah. All right. So along those lines, um, so what did you notice in education that led the four of you to come together? And how did the four of you actually come together to start this movement? Well, I think the first thing that all of us would say, and I do want to right now just mention our other um, co-founders, um, Dr. Kim Parker and um, Lorena Herman. Um, and we are all classroom teachers. We have I don't, I think at some point I counted how many years we have among us and it's, it's decades. <laughs> I don't want to age us too much, but it's decades. Um, and I think 
first and foremost, we're not, this is, this is not original work in some ways. In some ways, it is, we, we are building upon the legacy of other um, scholarship, especially, about, especially upon the scholarship of um, you know, academics and teachers of color who have come before us. So I wanna say that first, like we come from our ancestors, right? And we wanna honor that. So while we are doing something that we think is important and that we maybe distilled it in a way for people to hear it at this particular moment, it's also the voices of people who came before us that we are trying to amplify and uplift and recenter. Um, and I think along those lines, each of us was doing this work individually in our classrooms and with our students and in our workplaces and among our colleagues. And we were thinking about the, you know, all of us have worked in predominantly white institutions at some point and um, navigate, had to navigate those systems. And part of, I'll, I'll speak for myself, but I think I also speak for the others that part of our work has been trying to um, create a, and can create and construct an experience for students um, that is better than what we had. And individually doing that, great. But I think the power of social media, and I know that um, social media often gets a you know bad rap, and it, sometimes it's well deserved. Um, but it's also just a tool, right? And you can use a tool for many different things. And we were able to come together over Twitter um, through various education chats and other networks. And once you get into the education community, you start to realize how actually small it is. And you know, teachers are really um, some of the most generous people in the world when you need an idea. I think Julie and I, like the first interactions that we had with each other were like, I have, I need something for this unit or yeah. I need an essay for this or can someone recommend? And I'm like, here, I got something for you. Yeah. So that collaborative nature of teaching on social media and especially when you're isolated, like being able to reach out and know that you're not alone, that's how we came together. Um, Julia, if you want to add anything to that. Yeah, I'll just add and say that the community of, um, you know, practitioners who are also identify as um, Black, Indigenous, or other people of color, you know, we come together frequently to build community in various spaces, as Trisha mentioned. Teaching is over 80% white practitioners. So when you're in that kind of an environment on a regular basis, it is necessary to form networks of support. And that doesn't mean that we're without our struggles, but I think that being able to hold on to one another in times when you would feel isolated, I think that has really been a healing practice for us as educators and as practitioners. And so, you know, I think that one of the things that I really have always respected about my other three Disrupt Tech colleagues is that we each have some awesome experiences in teaching that don't belong to the other three. So I know that I can go to Trisha for really specific knowledge and I can go to Dr. Parker for really specific knowledge. I can go to Lorena for another really specific knowledge, but then we also have this collective body of knowledge that comes from experience and then also from the education that we have worked to attain. So, you know, we have degrees, lots of them, you know, among <laughs> us. So we aren't just out here, you know, not that folks who don't have degrees in teaching aren't able to do this work too, but I would say that I, I want the record to state that we've worked really hard over the, co the collective years of our experience to not only become better practitioners each year and be in better service to our kids, but then also to be able to study the work of other practitioners who, as Trisha mentioned, have been doing this work. It's an ongoing study that we do of folks like Django Paris, like um, Gloria Ladson Billings, like um, Profesora Carla Espana. Um, there's various people out there who are doing phenomenal work and we consider ourselves very much to be in some ways students of theirs. So I'll just leave that there. Oh, that's awesome. So. You had mentioned um, inclusion and just bringing more people into the fold. And so I, I'd like you to elaborate, like, how does this make everybody's education better? All right. So um, yeah, I'm, I'm in full agreement with you. Just kind of elaborate on, you know, uh, I work in a predominantly white district. And so if uh, I'm bringing this to my students, you know, how can I relay that, you know, this is a good thing to see other people's experience? I'm going to let Trisha take that one because she's also in 
I understand a predominantly white school environment. Yes. So I've been schooled in white institutions um, from the very beginning. I went to Catholic school. I went to public high school that was predominantly white. I, you know, public college, et cetera, et cetera. And I teach in a predominantly white institution. Um, and what I'll say is this. Um, I think it is difficult to um, disrupt systems and ask predominantly white people to disrupt systems that have historically benefited them, right? I think that that, that, is, a, that is something that we know has happened. That said, I'll speak also from my lens as a parent, all right? And I have three boys, elementary, middle, and high school. I don't want my kids leaving the school system being racially illiterate, right? Like I, when I think about the ways in which we are all racialized beings and the way that race has played a role in this country from its inception and before that I want my, my students to be able, my students and my own children to be able to understand what that means in the body that they live in and how to take responsibility for that and how to act in ways that are responsible and ethical and moral in the world, rather than be um, acting in ways that subconsciously uphold a racist system, right? And when I think about what it means to be able to interact with people who are different from us, I and mean, we know that research shows that the more diverse viewpoints you have, the more creativity you have, the more like innovation you have, and I think that to be able to work and dialogue across difference, whether it's racial difference or any other type of difference is a key skill that everyone needs. And skill, yes, in terms of workplace, if you wanna go a capitalist you know, argument, but skill also as in like your humanity, just your humanity, your very sense of who you are and being able to relate to others. And so for me, if I'm making an argument for why having an inclusive curriculum is important, I think about um, Dr. Redeem Sims Bishop's mirrors, windows, and sliding glass doors. And I think about how critical it is for students to see themselves, for them to be able to see and empathize with the experiences of others, right? And if we believe that literature is an important socializing mechanism, if we say, if we can all say that, Literature is important. And we know that people believe that because people have all sorts of opinions about what should get taught and not taught, right? If we say that's true, then we have to ask ourselves, and what are the consequences of having a curriculum that only showcases and continues to amplify one particular view or one particular experience? And what does that do, not just to students who are erased from that experience, but also what does that do to kids who continuously see themselves and how does that also harm them in terms of their ability to empathize with others? And I'll add to that and say that in a predominantly, in, a, in an environment like mine that is 98% black and brown students, we have a few Asian students as well, but it is predominantly black and Latinx students in my school. The work that I do and I take very seriously is that of helping them understand that their stories have value, that they are as worthy of publication, if that's what they want to do, as anyone else, that, you know, I bring the stories into the curriculum to help them understand you can not only write this, but you can write like this, and you can also write like yourself, and folks will want to read it. Because I think that something that happens when you grow up consistently thinking that Shakespeare and Chaucer and, you know, um, I'm blanking, but the guys who wrote Waiting for Godot, when you, when you wind up thinking that that's greatness, then you believe that you will never be that. And it's also very hard to relate to it. I think we need to ask ourselves serious questions in both environments about how many students are actually reading these books that are assigned. How many students are actually doing that versus learning performative scholarship, which is learning how to pass the tests, cheating, using Snapchat, doing whatever they need to do to just be able to turn in assignments. Because sadly, and we're feeling this even more now during the pandemic, as Trisha mentioned, school feels more like passing back and forth pieces of paper, electronic pieces of paper, but it feels, it can feel 
in the worst cases, in the worst environments, a lot like an exchange of, you know, you slide this paper over to me and then I will slide you your payment, which is your grade. And I don't care how you got the answers necessarily. It just needs to be right or I need to judge it as right. And for the longest time, the teacher has been the decider of what is good or what is right or what's quality. And that's especially problematic in an environment with a student body that is predominantly black, indigenous or other people of color because what winds up happening is you've got the white teacher as the gatekeeper of what is excellence. And that's very problematic. And that you know leads us to other conversations about grading and how that can be used as a punishment and reward and neither is really a good thing. So grading, you hit something that is very personal to me. Um, so I, I've been doing action research for the past six years. So what is your view on um, how we should approach grading in these contexts? So I think one thing that's really, um, I think one thing that all teachers need to do is to ask themselves where their standards come from and how were they socialize into believing what is correct and incorrect or what is right and acceptable versus what is worthy and not worth and what is worthy and not worthy right like especially like uh, our field like in literacy and in writing and reading instruction it's so much of this is constructed right right it someone constructed these standards for what makes writing descriptive on a four point scale on a three point scale and and the longer that i've taught the more that i've come to recognize how somewhat arbitrary this is and how like when you when you try to fit students into boxes like it contorts them in ways that are really damaging i think all students but particularly students of color who as you know julia said who have language practices and like rich cultural communication styles and skills that don't fit into those boxes that is really, it's, you're, you're telling someone that their voice and the way that they think and speak and communicate with the world doesn't fit or isn't worthy. And that is very personal or what they read isn't worthy, right? When we judge kids for what they wanna read, that that's not academic or that's not literary, right? When we make all these judgments, I think it really can do real harm to kids when you don't fit into a school system that's normed in whiteness. Um, so I, one thing that I would like teachers to do is to really think about, well, like really, what, what do you, where did you get these ideas of what is right and wrong? Where did you get these ideas of quality and you know not quality? And really to examine how so much of it has been the way we've been socialized through a school system. So this, these standards just get perpetuated. And it's, it doesn't have to be intentional right? That's not how racist systems work. Like you can just, I will speak for myself and say that when I first started teaching, I adopted the methods that were passed on to me by my mentor teachers. I pass, I perpetuated and duplicated the methods of instruction and grading and assessment that I myself was subjected to. And I thought that these were the right ways to do it, right? Like it worked for me, therefore it should work for these kids, right? And like it's only in the second half of my career that I started to realize it never sat right with me. And I started to think about like, where is this coming from? And, and it felt disingenuous to, to lie, to really lie to kids and say, well, you'll need this for whenever, or like, well, this is the standard or like in college, you will need to X, Y, or Z. And it, and it just felt like I was just making things up to justify the things that I was telling them they had to learn rather than thinking about, well, what are they bringing to the classroom and how can I celebrate it? How can I help each kid live up to their potential? How can I make sure they're honored and seen? And it really becomes a practice of humanizing rather than dehumanizing, right? Of rewarding what students already are bringing to the classroom rather than punishing them for not conforming to external standards of greatness. Because how many of our teaching practices, going back to what Trisha said about teaching in a way that we were taught to teach, which was the way that someone else taught our mentor teacher to teach. And a lot of times that started with, okay, you need to give the student a mentor text and then tell them to write like this. Well, who wrote the mentor text? What's wrong with them writing like themselves? You know, and why can't we collaborate with them to create a rubric that feels good for us as a class that will continually push our understanding of what is great, 
Why can't we decide for ourselves what is great? There are folks that for the longest time, they've had a big problem with um, the fact that, I guess I'll go back to what Trisha said about how it feels disingenuous when you're teaching AP to tell people that they're going to need this for, for later on in life. Well, I mean, I could, I could see how you could argue that someone will need college writing skills if they are planning on going to college, which we know many of our students do not. They will go to you know, technical education, for example. Many people go to technical education and have a great life. Or perhaps they will be tattoo artists or other creatives. And so their outlet will look different. But invalidating all but a single track of achievement is very problematic. And I think that what I have seen from you know, the work that I've done in my community has been that students first need to feel that sense of confidence that what they're bringing to the table is not only okay, but it's excellent. And we want them to bring their best and then we'll work from there to help them achieve a standard of greatness that is really not coming from me. I'm not gonna be the one that says, finally, this is excellent. And with the AP test, you have to do this very artificial thing where you write a rhetorical analysis, for example, in what is it, 55 minutes or something like that? It's 40, like 40, minutes. 40 now, okay. <laughs> so you're writing a rhetorical analysis with style in 40 minutes. When are you gonna have to do that in college? We don't, I don't think most colleges do that thing anymore where you have to sit down with the blue book and, and all of your writing assessments are done that way. It's more common for folks to get assigned a piece of writing and then they work with their teacher over the course of a week or so. The asynchronous thing is how it's happening. So we need to really take a look at some of our practices and ask the question, is this more punishment or reward? Is this painful? Is this helpful or is this harmful? Is this a loving and humanizing thing that we are doing with students? Or is this something that is invalidating them and making them feel like they're being punished? And I'm speaking, I don't mind saying this right now on this podcast, but my own child is being punished right now and she does not feel like her writing that she submits in her classes is ever good enough. And she told me just on the way in the car, on the way um, to get dinner this evening, she told me that when she turns things in, it always comes back with all of this, that's not very persuasive, that's terrible, this, that, and the other, all of these comments. And then she doesn't get the chance to revise it. And then she has to do it again the next week. That's not best practices for writing instruction. And I don't mind saying that because I think we all know that. I think we just do what is habitual and we do what feels safe and we do what we have taught, been taught will get us the results that we need to get. And I think that this is a perfect time to rethink all of those harmful practices and to not continue those things. Well, it's also what the system sets up. Like right. I think, I mean, that's, I mean, when I think about teachers, you know, who might, might be listening right now and are thinking like, now you're asking me to do everything different and new. Um, part of the way the system works and perpetuates itself is because it's, teachers have no time to do anything innovative or, ch or change, right? It just, it just continues the way it is. Um, there was something else that I was going to say as I was listening to Julia was, um, I think what this comes down to, I think, so we're, as language arts teachers and literacy teachers, like we, that that's our field, right? Our discipline. But really this idea of disrupt text transcends all fields, right? So when I think about, um, because what it comes down to is we're really, we have several, uh, four core principles to disrupt text. And the first one is to interrogate our biases and to think about how we've been socialized and that how that affects our teaching and our relationship with students. You can take that and apply that to any discipline. So when I think about science, for example, and Dave, I know you said you were a science teacher. I think about the ways in which like, I, I hope no science teachers come after me because I'm not a science teacher, but I'm just going to offer a perspective, which is that, um, you know, when I think about the scientific method, and I think about like, that's one way of knowing. And, and I'm not saying that that's not a good way of knowing. I'm like, I'm all for, I believe in science, okay? Wear a mask, right? But I wonder to what extent we also um, amplify and center and respect like indigenous ways of knowing, for example, of being with the world, right? When I think about an environmental science class, I think about the ways in which indigenous peoples have been in this, you know, on this land and have ways of knowing of how to take care of the land. They have a wealth of knowledge that goes back thousands of years that 
we're not listening to their perspective or centering their perspective about the earth when we think about climate, right? Right. So those are the kinds of examples that I think about disrupt techs, that mindset of like, okay, let's, let's look at the system and let's make visible the invisible walls that have constructed it. And then ask ourselves, do we still want these? What, what have the outcomes been? And how can we then change these, these structures so that we have different outcomes? I couldn't have said that better. I think that that's at its core, what we are hoping for is that folks will look at what we've been doing and how we can change it to not only have better outcomes for students and for ourselves, but so that we can stop really treading water. But then also, I think a lot of what we do is counterintuitive. Learning is supposed to be a process of being curious about something, asking questions, identifying ways that you wanna grow and expand, and then working with your teacher who may have more knowledge about the subject, but might not, and learning side by side. I know that Paulo Freire has said, when the teacher becomes the student and the student becomes a teacher, then you can actually really start to get somewhere. And that's not a direct quote at all. So please look it up if you're looking for the actual quote from him. But I always remember that moment that I first stumbled upon that because it really rang a bell inside me. I wanted to be that kind of teacher that could learn from my students as well. So when we are thinking about Trisha mentioning indigenous ways of looking at environmental science, there's no reason why we can't take a look at those within our systems with it with indigenous students if they're curious about the history of their people in whatever nation they might come from. It's important for us to center non-white peoples. And that's not something the education system is was built to do, to be honest. It was built to, you know, indoctrinate and to, in some ways, oppress. And so that's why we see when, you know, we've got segregated schools now, but when Brown versus the Board of Education changed things, a lot of educators of color were just removed from the system. And then all of a sudden, you know, it was an inundation of white educators with a colonizer mindset. And I want folks to hear me, you know, when I say decolonize, we've got to decolonize our minds and we've got to help coach students so that they can decolonize their thinking too about the role of education, but then also about the content of what happens within an educational setting. So I want to just stop you for a second there. When you say, I, I know there's people that are going to be listening that don't understand what you mean when you say decolonize. Can you elaborate on that a little bit? Yeah, I can just say that colonization, as we know, was the process of spreading ideas and ways of living and, you know, systems of government, religion, economy, all of these things all over the world. And the major colonizers were Western European powers for, you know, a long period of time. And so most of us who Montessori for Social Justice calls people of the global majority, we have come from nations that were colonized at one point and are still experiencing the after effects of colonization. Anti-blackness is one of those. And so you'll see colorism and we could go off on all these little, you know, arms of what decolonization entails, but it, it's a process of identifying how that has been rooted in not only the way you think, but in the way that you receive and respond to the world around you and the way that you interact with other people, and then asking the questions. Is this good for me? Is this helpful, harmful, oppressive? Am I one who is perpetuating systems of oppression? If so, how can I learn to do better? Because all of us are experiencing living in a post-colonial world. And I don't even know that it's post-colonial. No, it's not. It's, <laughs> it's, saying, not. <laughs> it's the new colonization that we got going on right now. Yeah. Trisha, can you add on to that at all? Well, I think if educators are wondering, what does it mean to decolonize? I think one of the things educators, and I know that I've had to do this myself, and I don't pretend to be an expert on this at all, right? Because I am always still learning, is that you have to look at the history of education in the United States. And you think about some of the earliest forms of public education were um, Indian residential schools, whose sole purpose was to assimilate Native peoples into white European culture, right? And that's the history 
that's the foundation upon which our public schools are built, right? And you have to reckon that with, you know, this idea that like, are, are our schools very different today than those early schools? And I'm not sure that they are when you actually look at the outcomes for students of color, especially. Like I just, I, they're, they're not. They're simply not because I think about my own experience. I'm Asian American, second generation Filipina. And I think about the ways in which I internalize ways of assimilation, assimilation into whiteness. And I think about the ways in which I learn from school, like living in a black and white binary system, right? I learned and received messages that being as close to white adjacent as possible was the way to achieve success. And I have had to do a lot of work on myself to unlearn that, right? I even catch myself, whenever I catch myself thinking about something that is, you know, um, achievable or desirable, I have to ask myself, like, to what extent is that mindset from, like, a form of colonization, like that I've been socialized into thinking that's whether it's like grades, whether it's like going to college, like the brand name colleges, whether it's like, you know, um, the kinds of activities like that I want my own children to do. Like I have to really think about what are my values and how have my values been socialized and perpetuated by the system that I, um, I grew up in. Right. So I think what Julia said is right. Like I think teachers need to understand that the history of school in the United States has always done harm to students who are not in the white majority. And how do schools, how can schools be systems that are really for everyone and not just for a few? Now, I, I would actually extend that and say our special ed community mm -hmm. is also falling into that. And um, that was a lot of the work that I was doing was with that population. And I saw a lot of parallels. Yeah. Yeah. So. yeah. Oh, I mean, especially when I think about the forms, I mean, when we think about any of the isms, the forms of oppression that exist. And I, I always think about um, Dr. Lori Watson. This is the, this is the first, the first time I heard her say this, I thought, yes, that's right. Like that racism is the blueprint for many forms of oppression. Right. And that when I started thinking in those ways, I started to realize, yes, sexism, ableism, like um, your transphobia, homophobia, like they are all built on the same system, right? And really it's all to keep certain people in power. And they are very invested in maintaining those systems of power, which is why it's so difficult for folks to cede the mic or to, you know, give up a position of perceived power um, because, you know, then we go back to this idea or question of privilege in society. And I think that one of the hopes that I have for Disrupt Techs is that we're not still having these same conversations 20, 30, 40 years from now, because I know that I sat in a room full of elders in my community and their eyes were rolling <laughs> and they were sitting there just thinking, you know, you are cute. But we've been having this conversation for the last 30 years. Nothing's going to change. And th they said that in like 2018, I want to say. And they're right. They're right. I sat there on that committee, served over 200 hours, was so excited about all the work that we were doing. And not a whole lot has changed. I mean, maybe they say change takes time. But sometimes I think we get caught in this wheel of thinking, oh, change takes time. Okay. And then... By the time time that you know undefined you know amount of space has passed then the people who remember the damage that was done in the beginning they're gone and so we just keep running around in circles or going on the hamster wheel over and over again and i think i would just really like to you know whether i'm here to see it or not i would really like to know that children of the future are going to experience something better different more humanizing less hurtful um, and, you know, more inclusive and more um, liberatory than the school experience that I had and that my daughter is having, frankly, 20 years later. So you must be reading my mind because my next question is, how do we get there? Well, the disrupt text pillars, as <laughs> interrogating bias is really important, you know? 
understanding how your bias informs what you choose to study or what you choose to put in front of your students, what you deem worthy of academic study, that's very important. Um, and really just looking at that with a close eye and, and analyzing yourself. So it starts with self. And then I also think that one thing we are starting to ask folks is how are you doing the work of disrupting whatever content area you teach beyond just your classroom? So how are you working with folks in your building beyond just your little isolated space that you can control? Because we all say control what you can control. Okay, but then the next step is how are you working to help other folks see how they can be a part of this work too? And I would um, say, especially for um, white educators who often have, well, not often, usually do, almost always have um, racial privilege in these spaces to do that work of disruption, to ask questions about why the systems are the way they are and why this policy is the way it is. And to always ask who, like when, when you think about any policy or practice, the, asking the question, who does this benefit? At the end of the day, who does this benefit and who was left out? And if you start doing a really critical analysis of every single policy and practice that you have, whether it's in, a, in the system that is your classroom, or whether it's the system that is your disciplinary policy, or your um, the gatekeeping of like honors academic. I mean, let's just I mean, tracking is a whole other issue, right? Gifted and talented programs, like asking like, who does this benefit? Who is meant to be served by this? And if you just start disaggregating data. The data is there and it hasn't changed. If you just start disaggregating data across every single policy and practice you have as a school and as a community, you will the evidence will be clear about who is being served and who benefits from the system. So that's the first thing that I think really, um, I think it's James Baldwin, and I'm gonna I'm gonna <laughs> I'm gonna uh, butcher this too. But there's James Baldwin said something about we need to confront ourselves, right? We need to like look at ourselves really, really hard in the mirror and we need to do that as individuals and we need to do that as a system. And we need to really think about who is being erased or marginalized and how do we recenter so that the people who have been on the margins can actually be heard. Because I think one of the things, the way systems work, typically the people who are in charge of systems are the ones who have the most power, they're in charge, right? That's just by the definition. They're also the ones who are least capable of seeing the things that are wrong with the system because they're because the system in some ways is working for them. If you really want to know what's broken with your system, you have to ask the people who are most marginalized by it. And in the United States, and I don't want to take credit for this because it was on a podcast, another podcast that I listened to. I believe it was the, um, I believe it was the, 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 the guys who did Seeing White, that podcast. I believe it was on an episode related to that. It was the one on, on gender, I think, that they, they did a series on that. Um, but if you, in the United States, the people you should ask if the system is working is black women. Like black women can tell you everything that is wrong with any system and any practice. And that has been for me, like that for me has been revelatory to like think in that way, right? And to really trust and believe and to listen, not because black women owe us their labor in any kind of way, but because they have wisdom and a, a perspective that can lead us forward, that we just need to listen. I appreciate that. And I'll say that, you know, I learned from black women too, you know, being <laughs> one and learning from my mom and my elders in my family, as well as those in the community, you know, like I have some amazing folks in my community who were librarians or teachers and they taught in my building for like 20 years. And we'll just sit down and talk about all the things that haven't changed and be grumpy, but they have like, you're right, Trisha, they have a wisdom and she'll laugh and, you know, stroke my arm and say, it's okay, baby, you can cry. <laughs> you know, it's just, you know, it, I understand how you feel because we do keep going on the hamster wheel and they see it because they have this perspective. And I, I'm very grateful to the folks who have helped me to feel like I'm not crazy because my voice is one that, is often silenced. And it's something that happens, you know, subconsciously, I think. Sometimes in meetings, folks will just go ahead and talk right over me and then respond to the next white teacher who says something, or, you know, just completely ignore what I have to say or appropriate it for being a shoulder to cry on, basically, and yeah. for being somebody, you know, 
I'm thinking in particular of this woman, her name is Mrs. Brooks and her son was on um, city council. And she just came to me one day and she was like, I just have so much respect for the work that you're doing. How can I help you? And she just sat there and took notes. And I went off because that particular day I was feeling a lot of things. And she was offering me financial support. You know, she would come up with folks in the community to help me. And I just think that, yes, Trisha is right. Listen to Black women. But also, I think that sometimes when you say, how can I help you? Folks know. But a lot of times people don't know how they can be helped. So it's really important to offer something up and say, hey, you know, I would love to do this for you. Would that be helpful? That's something that I wish people said more often. Um, instead of always just, you know, I'm here for you or let me know if I can do anything. People or say that a lot. After the meeting. Right. The meeting <laughs> after the meeting too. Who? Let me tell you. The meeting after the meeting is intense. And so, you know, that's when it all goes down and when the truth actually comes out about what happened. So I guess I would just say, what can people do right now? You can ask yourself the questions that help you interrogate your bias. You can interrogate your curriculum in a group of other scholars for who are the voices that are missing and how can you, is this a humanizing or dehumanizing curriculum? Who is being centered and who is being essentially silenced or erased? And then you can also try to think about the moves that folks in your community have made that have been empowering and uplifting and do those rather than just saying, I'm here for you, let me know if you need anything. Or ask folks, you know, I'd like to do this, would this be helpful and useful to you? And listen to kids. I mean, especially students of color. I mean, I just, I think we need to really listen to what they need. I think sometimes as well-meaning adults, we tend to do for rather than with and listen to the the, the parents and families in our community that have most have that have been historically marginalized and how can we reach out and come to them you know and earn trust right like I think that that also happens in systems where you know I mean if you have a group of people who have been consistently marginalized and excluded like why would they trust the system in any kind of way right and um, I think sometimes school systems, especially like sometimes predominantly white school systems think like, oh, well, we did this outreach and no one came or well, we sent out emails and then no one came or like, I mean, you can look at you can look at it right now in this 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 vaccine rollout. OK, like like this idea, like who is who is being privileged here? Right. People who have a computer, people who have the privilege to sit and refresh, refresh, refresh to get an appointment. Like these are the things like that system that we're seeing play out in real time during a pandemic. That system has always existed. It's existed at every every access point in our schools, right? There have been barriers for communities over and over again that I think that we haven't reckoned with, right? And it's it's going to take a long time to think about how we can rebuild trust. And going back to what we said at the very beginning of this, how can we restore a humanizing education? Actually, I don't even know. Sometimes I wonder if restore is even the right word sometimes, Julia, because sometimes I'm like, when was it humanizing? And I'm not sure. I, I think you're right. I think yeah. you're absolutely right in that. When so, was it humanizing? That's the big question. Well, that's when I think about Dr. Goldie Mohammed, right? How she talks about how like black literacy traditions, right? And how those were nurtured within the black community. Yes. And I think about Dr. Bettina Love, who also says, you know, I was sitting, the first time I heard her speak, she says, I'm not sure that school is a place that can be healing. Like, if you want to find healing, you have to find it in the community, you know? Well, and I think about um, Ta-Nehisi Coates has a, a great memoir um, that he wrote. And one of the things in the memoir, he talks a lot about how a lot of his education came from his father. So he would go to school, but then he would come home and his father would say, okay, now we're actually gonna learn. And he taught him about what it meant to be black. And there are these cultural schools. Um, there's a wonderful educator, phenomenal, brilliant educator, Dr. Sarah Park Dolan. And we talked a little bit about cultural schools where folks go to learn about mm -hmm. their culture because school, at least in America, is sucking the culture out of you and teaching you not to be proud of where you come from. So, you know, I think that the fact that people have to go to extra lengths 
just to be humanized and to find some kind of knowledge about who they are, that says a lot about our school system and the work that it doesn't do and the harm that it does do. And I think we're seeing that, both of you mentioned it, in this time of pandemic, when so many students are being left out of what's going on in school. And, you know, school these days, I mean, I can't say I'm a librarian right now, so I don't have a full-time class. But librarianing right now in the time of COVID is a very sad thing. I sit there and read books to myself quite frequently and record them and then send them out. And maybe people respond and sometimes they don't. I visit classes and sometimes there's a little animation, but often I'll see a ceiling fan or somebody, you know, just asleep. Or this one time, I'll never forget, there was a mom who had twins and then she had three other kids that were under the age of the sixth grade twins. So she was going back and forth between one twin in one bedroom and one in the other and I could see her on the screen. And she just kept saying like, teacher, my student needs help. You know, we need help doing this, that and the other. But her other three kids were there at the home and she was trying to take care of them too. So, you know, what we're doing right now is very difficult and I'm hoping that we can find a way through this to the other side without becoming even more entrenched in the punitive measures that we adopted before, such as making everyone attend summer school if they're not at a certain benchmark or, you know, harming people by saying, okay, well, you're supposed to have learned all of this during the pandemic and you didn't. So now you're not going to pass. Those are the things that I fear and that I'm hoping won't happen. And I'm hoping we can find a way around. Yeah, I, I I agree completely. Um, you know, that's that's one of the thing. Learning loss is really talked about by people who aren't in education. It's an it's an arbitrary benchmark that we can change at any point. So you know, I choose to focus on skills and building that, and so we can adjust. And for me, moving away from that grade has given me the freedom to actually give students more freedom, you know, which it, it's, it's empowered them, their experience in a science class was, which is typically one that they have some of the most challenges with. Um, they've done quite well, so it can be done, but I fear that like you, people are just trying to ride this out and go back to normal when it's mm -hmm. all over. And I think if we do that, we're missing a huge opportunity. We are missing an opportunity for disruption. And that's what we want folks to do and to consider is that, you know, this can really be an opportunity. You hear people say, I'm reimagining. Are you really, though? How <laughs> imaginative are you being? Because I'm yeah. not really seeing a whole lot of invention or imagination here. Yeah. So those are the things that, you know, I'd like to see more of. Um, so we'll see. We will see where things go. So. Final question, how can people connect with you and how can they support you in this movement? You can email us at disrupttext. or Trisha, help me. <laughs> disrupttext at Gmail, I think. Yes. Um, but you can go to our website, disrupttext.org. Please connect with us on Twitter. We Our handle is so, uh, not surprisingly, disrupt text. <laughs> um, connect with any, you know, and on there you'll see all four of us as the co-founders. Um, we sometimes hold some Twitter chats. In fact, that's one way we got sort of started when we started having Twitter chats about some of the curriculum and the books we teach and such. So look out for the hashtag so that you can just jump into the conversation at any time and just ask questions. Um, and yeah, I think we also have some, um, I think Julia mentioned before we started, like we also have our uh, Disrupt Tech store and not, and we're not, um, I really want to make sure that this is not like promotion buyer stuff. Like this is not that. This is, um, we have some like t-shirts and stuff like that, but the that work goes into starting conversations with other people and it goes into furthering professional development for teachers around Disrupt Techs, yep. right? So if you wanna think about how you can support this work, how you can get information out there, um, a t-shirt starts a conversation. Like, what does that mean? Like we got some, you know, and, and like, what is, what is that, what exactly does that mean? And if you can practice just like explaining, oh, this is what Disrupt Text is, or this is, you know, like, I think that those are small ways that can have impact because even though systems can seem overwhelming, systems are made of individuals and individuals every day make decisions that either perpetuate the system or disrupt it. And the question that teachers have to sit with is like, which, where am I and what am I doing? 
and where, how is this going to lead to humanizing or dehumanizing my students? Yeah, I couldn't add anything better onto that. I, we appreciate the support that we have, um, that we have received from, you know, our communities. And I know that Trisha is going to have an amazing summer institute. Which I think we're going to cross our fingers that we can make a disrupt text thing happen too, right? Yeah, yeah we would like to. We would yeah, really I like think that's going to gonna be good. Yeah. IRL is Trisha and Dr. Sonia Terry Paul's um, I won't call it a baby. I would call it a, a teenager because it's, it's happened for a couple of years now. But um, it's an institute for racial literacy. And, you know, we're very proud of the work that she does. And I know that Lorena has um, she and her husband have multicultural classrooms. So they've got stuff going on. And Dr. Kim Parker is working on some really exciting things behind the scenes that I don't think I can talk about right yeah, now. <laughs> but she's doing really exciting work. And she also has a column with is it ILA? She has um she's a she's a column in the journal for adolescent literature. literature? J A A L, whatever J -A -A -L. that stands for. Okay. So she's got a column in J A A L. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> so but yeah, you can catch us on Twitter and you know on all of the socials, and we're grateful for the support that folks have lent. But the, as Trisha mentioned, the best way that you can support us is by starting the conversations at your school and asking the questions. You know, get the pillars going and have those deep conversations. Well, I think you're all doing an awesome job. Thank you for spending some time with me, and hopefully, uh, people get as much out of this as I have. No. Thank, you. thank you for having us. We really yeah. appreciate it. Yeah. Thank you so much. Thanks for listening. I look forward to hearing your feedback. For more resources, visit www.reimagineschools.com or reach out to me on Twitter at David Frangioso.